Hey guys, Joe Miles here with Osseo Gear. This is the Mission Whitetail Podcast. We're going to be doing a deep dive into what it truly takes to kill these mature bucks. We're going to step outside the box and look at the why for gear, tactics, training, and more importantly, the mindset from over 35 years of chasing these magnificent animals all over North America. Thank you for following along and welcome to Mission Whitetail. All right, guys, right back to Mission Whitetail. This is our first episode of the second year of Mission Whitetail, and we have a distinguished guest tonight, Mr. Rendell Eric. He is our boy from Iowa, and Rendell is a big buck killing machine, and he has actually been helping us along the trade show circuit this year, and Man, he knows whitetail in and out, and he knows gear in and out, and he and I met on social media and absolutely hit it off when we got together. I mean, literally met, met him uh, with the team with Cole and Kevin in a, a hotel lobby, and we got in the elevator, and Cole said he was scared of elevators, and Rendell started jumping up and down, shaking the whole <laughs> elevator, so I knew right then it was a match made in heaven. Uh, he, he definitely gets our sense of humor and uh, it automatically just felt like one of the teams. So, Rendell, thank you, man, for being here tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, um, Rendell, as always, uh, some guys are going to know exactly who you are, what you do. Give us a little history. I'm, I'm really fascinated with your story about how you kind of bounced around young with military family and then, you know, just picked up and moved to Iowa. And just, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and, and how you ended up in Iowa. Yeah. So, um, my dad was a Marine. He moved, moved around a bunch, uh, lived in a bunch of different States. Uh, I live with my grandparents too, a little bit. And, um, yeah, didn't start out hunting. My dad was a big fisherman, fished all those big bass tournaments all around the southeast and stuff. And I started off kind of being a fisherman too. Um, and then as I got a little older, I don't know, I kind of wanted to do my own thing. So I was like, oh, my dad doesn't hunt. And then, you know, I'm just a hillbilly. So, you know, you're around the hunting culture, you know, growing up and, um, I was like, oh, that's something that I could I could do for myself instead of like the fishing thing. So I was like, oh, I want to be a hunter. So uh, I kind of moved around to some other states a little bit after I got out of high school and got into watching um, the Will Primos videos, like I said in that other podcast. And it kind of sparked my interest with the, the St. Hollywood deal. Yep. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. So uh you can't kill big deer if you don't live somewhere where there's where there's not big deer. So I just got a wild hair to go to Iowa. I didn't really, I didn't know anybody there. Never really been there. So I just packed up all my crap and moved to Iowa. That's hard. Yeah, I just talked to some different people that I had connections with and kind of asked them like a couple different towns. So they gave me a list of a few different towns and I just kind of, picked one out and went and didn't know anybody didn't even have a job lined up nothing i just saved up some money and moved here and uh, lived in a campground for seven months until 
I got a small apartment. <laughs> figured out a crappy job I could work. And then you started chasing the big white tail. So, right, I mean, you're self-taught, or you you had some mentors, or you you just watched a bunch of YouTube. I mean, how, how did you how did you go from zero to I'm a bow hunting, you know, mobile saddle hunting assassin? How, how did you how did you uh, you know put all that together? Yeah, I don't even know sometimes, honestly. <laughs> like, how did I get here? I don't even know. But I absolutely knew nothing about deer hunting, pretty much. I just started going on my own, uh, reading books, talking to guys that hunted, um, watching videos, just going out in the woods and getting my ass handed to me. <laughs> yep. Like, I didn't even know, like, hanging a trail camera anything about that stuff when it came out you know i'm just out there running around uh just freestyling i think that's why i'm so open-minded because i'm not setting any like hardcore rituals or old-fashioned routines i just kind of try anything out to see if it works or not and then um i met some people later like my taxidermist and just talking to them about deer movement and stuff like that and then YouTube became a thing, and then watching videos and just mo. I was mobile hunting before even the YouTube craze came out. I was carrying like forty pound hang on with some steel crappy like river edge sticks and stuff, <laughs> like half dead before I even got to the tree. And then, but I, I still kill deer out of it, and I. Even had some like ladder stands that I used that I messed around with. Whatever I could get dirt cheap because, you know, just hunting anywhere too. Public land, free permission, just where I could ever fit in at. Um, well, that's kind of, that's your deal, isn't it? I mean, public land is your deal. I mean, that's what you like. That's yeah. what you prefer. Um, and, you know, a lot a lot of our use, uh, listeners, you know, we, we obviously have demographic from all over, but we, we've never really dove into the public land side of things so that's that's gonna be neat for guys to hear about you know kind of what you run into there and 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 maybe even talk some strategy about you know j just off the rip like what what you look for and and you know where you know where you can get away from the crowds and that sort of thing i mean you don't need to divulge all your secrets but um, you, you know, I, I obviously just, just touch on the public land side of it and, and why you prefer that. I've always had to hunt it out of necessity, really, because I've never been rich. I didn't have money to afford leases or go to outfitters or buy private land. So it's pretty much what I had. And a lot of the free permission I would get, there'd be more pressure on the free permission than there would be the public land. So I just gravitated toward that. And then, I mean, this is a long progression too, like in my mid twenties until now, like just learning how to hunt on my own and then getting your own system. I just fell in love with the mobile hunting because you just notice things over a period of time. Like the first sit is usually when I'd kill my big buck the first time I was there. And you know what I mean? A lot of guys hunt the same tree over and over and over. Yeah, and then you see less and less deer every time. So picking up on little things. So I just came up with my own running gun type system. That usually I sit one spot once, and that's it. I'm in a different tree every day. 
Now, um, hunting public land gives me the freedom to move around. I can bounce around pressure. I can find a multitude of mature bucks. If you're strapped into like two pieces of 40 acre private, you're going to live or die by whatever's on that two pieces of private land you got. Where I can go to hundreds of pieces of public, you know, in the state. So it just gives me a lot. It's more of a target rich environment, I guess. I can get more inventory built up quicker, bounce around some pressure more. Yeah. And, and that you, you talked about one and done, you know, one, one set, like in the mornings, you go in in the dark, you hang, you hunt that morning. Will you break down in the middle of the day and go somewhere else? Or do you like when, when I do it, um, you know, normally I'll do like an afternoon, I'll go in and hang in the tree, depending on what the situation is, hunt that evening. A lot of times I'll leave everything in the tree come out and then come back in. But, but, you know, a lot of that or all of that is private. So public, you might have to take everything out. I don't know what the rules are. Yeah. In Iowa, you can leave it as long as you want until, until season's done. Okay. I'm most, I'm mostly an evening hunter because I just have confidence that deer, the buck's already in the bed. I know where the bedding area is, or I found the bed already and I'm, predicting okay i got a northwest wind he's going to be in this bed or in this bedding area so it's easier to slide in i can see what i'm doing it's quieter it's quicker to climb and i just get more movement in the afternoons to mature bucks once i get in that bubble in the morning it's a lot harder to the j hook and there's a lot of other deer moving around you to go back to bed it can be a rodeo but i will uh i will hunt in the morning i'll just walk in in the dark and set up but i usually don't leave my morning set i tear it down but my evening sometimes like you said if the buck didn't come through i might leave it there and come back in the morning to see if i can catch him in the morning and that that's bit me a time or two i talked myself out of not doing that and then the buck showed up in the morning and i wasn't there because i was yeah. in a different tree somewhere else and then other <laughs> times it's paid off that i made that move to somewhere fresh in the morning and then the buck came in on me in the morning. Yeah. And then, uh, sometimes I'll set up three times in a day, like, especially during a rut, I'll hunt one spot in the morning, midday, I'll switch to somewhere else. And then the afternoon I'll make a move and set up in another spot. Cause I hunt pretty low so I can be set up. You know, I hunt in that zero to 12 foot range mostly. So two sticks, my platform and my saddle five to 10 minutes and I'm hunting. You know, you and I talked on the, uh, before the echo podcast and you were talking about, which I thought was a really good point. You were talking about why you like to hunt in that no man's land. T talk about that a little bit. I, I know our listeners would love to hear that too. Yeah. That, that zero to 12 foot. Yep. Yeah. So I, I feel like, uh, the deer don't look in that in-between layer and that's because all the predators are usually really low to the ground or they're way up in the tree. So they're either looking out in front of them or they're looking high. And then there's even some research out there that talks about there's like a blurry spot in a deer's vision at that like eight to 12 foot range when they look out. Um, I haven't dug too deep into that, but 
I've heard of that, and uh, I feel like they're just not focused on you when you're in that lair, and you can use a lot of the back cover, because I don't care if there's any cover in front of me or even on my tree. I'll hunt out of a bare tree if I have the backdrop that I want. It, it'll break up your outline. To me, I've gotten away hunting some insane setups just by having a even like a a drainage ditch where it meets the field and I'm, it's just cutting me in half and I got some branches or something behind me. So d my key is just breaking up your outline with everything behind you. And I lean out in the saddle. I'm not a sitter. So I'm more leaned out like that away from the tree. So yeah. I just look like a branch. You know, you look at a crotch in a tree, it's just V'd out. You do look a lot like a crotch, like a big seven-foot-tall <laughs> yeah. crotch. So, yeah, that, that is true. And that's why he keeps it under 12 foot or around 12 foot, because he'll be taller than the damn tree that's, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly 12 foot. Right. Yeah, the tree so, will be here. Yeah, Randall's head will be here. <laughs> yeah, so, Randall, I know you don't really – you do whatever you have to do to get um, the job done. That's your style, but – or would you say you're primarily a bed hunter? Yeah, I focus more on the bedding areas than anything else. Not always specific beds, but the buck bedding areas. Um, I like to get within like 100 yards of them, usually in the direction of secondary food and the main food source in line. But I will hunt the secondary food coming out even though it's not in the same direction because I feel like a buck is not really a straight line mover like those are. They more do a bunch of loops and curves and stuff. We and call meander. that long lining. Yeah. <laughs> they long line for sure. <laughs> Derailed. So, I, get a, I get in that secondary food source and hit them with the old razzle-dazzle. <laughs> juice that's what it's called yeah. booner juice oh, sorry guys this is some inside jokes here just some funny stuff we, we we get deranged on this trade show circuit and come up with some wild stuff so apologies didn't mean to derail you back to seriousness yeah so uh just overlook secondary food sources. A lot of guys don't key in on that or even know what they are. So I feel like the main majority of the pressure is going to be out on the main food sources, field edges, or just inside the timber line. So I'm going way past everybody else and uh, hitting the bedding area with that secondary food browse. And they browse on so many different things. Um, it's kind of wild how much different stuff they eat. So it pays to dive really deep to look into that they got some books and stuff online you can look into or talk to like a biologist what are your main secondary for new guys what are your main secondary food sources you're looking for uh honey locust pods red or dogwood stinging nettles um there's like a raspberry bush thing uh maple leaves hedge leaves the whole Our damn forest. <laughs> briars. We, we they eat a ton of yeah. briars yeah. here. Yeah, duck potato, some kind of aquatic algae stuff they'll eat too. There's a those are mostly what I'm looking for uh, in the Midwest. 
Do you key in on any like red oaks or white oaks when they start dropping? Um, or are you, do you kind of just not even worry about those and, and, you know, do the duck potato and all that, those other ones you just listed off? The, if I'm in Iowa, it opens October. So the white, the white oaks are kind of dried up. They're not really keyed in on that. The red oaks, they seem to switch to more on opener, but the honey locust pods, the first two weeks of the season, it's really what I'm focusing on and like the stinging nettles. I don't really key in on acorns too much unless I'm in the big hill country of Iowa. And then it makes it tough. I kind of shy away from hill country until later in the season because a buck can just lay in his bed all day on a point and eat acorns and never have to get up. And it's almost impossible to get, get on top of him unless you swing in there in the morning and catch him coming into the bed. Yeah, that makes good sense. So let, let's dive back into, because it may be a little bit confusing to guys when, when you talk about a secondary food source. And and the way I look at that, and, and I'm not going to change definitions here, but it, it's really the first food source he hits when he gets up out of his bed. Um, and then his primary food source may be two miles away. It may be a bean field or a corn field or somebody's private land food plot. That's, that's where he's going to end up and do most of his feeding. But what, when Rendell's talking, and Rendell, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but when, you, when you're talking about a secondary food source, he stands up out of his bed. He may move 10 yards. He may move 200 yards. And whatever that first food he encounters, he's going to chomp on that for a bit. And then slowly, like you say, make his way. And it, that may be after dark once he leaves that first food source he hits to get all the way to his primary is is that is that accurate or safe to say yeah that's definitely correct right on the money he's it's usually like going to stay it's yeah. like an appetizer <laughs> exactly and, and that's little... absolutely that's that's deadly because you know you hear guys talk about how bucks are nocturnal and and what what and, and I, I have seen it where some bucks absolutely are nocturnal. You hear people say all the time that bucks are not nocturnal, but in South Carolina, they there are deer that are nocturnal. I mean, that will not get up out of the cutover um, until after dark. And, and it's I don't know if it's a genetic thing or something they learn over time, but a lot of guys that say deer are nocturnal, they're nocturnal when they get to them. You know, they might have yeah. private where the deer are feeding at 10 o'clock at night, but when they get up out of their bed on public, they might be only moving 50 yards in daylight. And that's where I think your style of being mobile and super aggressive, you know, you might have to get into that bubble where they are coming up out of their bed. And, and you, you know, with that style, you've got to be prepared to blow that buck up. <clears throat> yeah. Because in my mind, I don't think any deer are nocturnal because they have to browse a couple times a day to live. They're just getting up inside of the bedding area. So like you said, the buck in South Carolina, I mean, he's still going to get up and browse on stuff, but it's just going to be around him in that little tiny bedding area, which makes it super hard to get in there on him. And he might not ever leave that little 50-yard circle until after dark, what makes it super tough to kill those bucks but i like to be at least 100 yards or closer if possible on 
on the buck bedding areas or if I have a bed picked out already. Because sometimes a lot of the mature bucks, they, they'll just have a bed in a bedding area to themselves. It'll be some overlook spot or some little uh, niche that's out of the way. And I find that they're usually behind the other deer, like the does, and then the younger bucks are bedded in front. It's almost like they're in layers, and that mature buck's in the back, and he uses the younger bucks and the does as like an alert, like a safety uh, net. Yeah, and, and I guess that, that's fair. I, I mean, I, I agree that the bucks are not going to, you know, get into their bed at, 30 minutes before daylight and lay right there in their bed until 10 o'clock at night. But, but what we have here, like in South Carolina and a lot of the, the Southern States, we have these big two, three, 400 acre cutovers that, that yeah. are three years old and you can't get a stand in there. You, you can't walk in there. I mean, yeah. and, but it's, it's, you know, briars and thick and, you know, a deer would hear you coming a mile away. So, I mean, they, they, they're nocturnal outside of that cutover or that really thick yeah. bedding area where you could not hunt them. You, you couldn't hunt them there. So that that's fair that they, they do, you know, uh, most or all bucks are going to get up throughout the day and piddle around, go to the bathroom, maybe stray 50, 60 yards from their bed, eat a little bit, lay back down, maybe even reposition and rebed. I know in hill country, a lot of times, depending on how the thermals are going, you know, they may change beds throughout the day. So that that's you know that's all that's fair. Yeah, and if you get like a wind switch too during the middle of the day, they might have to make a move so they still have the wind advantage. And um, some bucks don't even bed based upon the wind; they bet on sound. Uh, I know a lot of marsh bedding stuff. The bucks more relying on sound. Like he's in that bed no matter what the wind is, but he's using like the cattails and stuff around him. Like he's gonna hear you coming, so not everything's wind based per se. But even that buck that's in the cattail marsh, he's got to get up and move. Like you're saying, it's kind of like the same thing as a cutover. There's just nowhere to hunt. Like there's nothing to get in there unless you're on the ground. And that stuff's so thick, it's pretty much impossible to hunt unless you get kind of crazy and use like a ladder or something. You know? Yeah, that's a that's a different animal there. Yeah, right, so what go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just saying, yeah. So sometimes there's like their terrain and the environment restricts you from getting in that hundred yard bubble. That's where I would try to get to the closest spot you could hunt, but make sure there's some type of food source there. It might not, you know, you don't want to sit on the corn or something, but they might come up on like a point or something to eat like maple leaves or honey locust pods a certain time of year. So knowing when they're hitting that food sources, they might do that long line thing and they might be comfortable hitting that because they're not receiving any pressure in the marsh. So they might move a little bit further and hit that uh, dry land that you can hunt like the last 30 months of daylight and stage there then move out so you still might have an opportunity to get on them even though you think it's impossible to get within 100 yards of the bed because there's a lot of situations like there's no sure thing in deer hunting it's all it's all about that one situation 
Yeah, the only thing consistent in deer hunting is inconsistency. Everything's yeah. always changing. No two bucks are exactly the same. It, it's, but that's what's so fun about it, right? Is is it's it's a constant game of strategy. Yeah, it's endless. You always got a challenge. Every buck's different. Every terrain's different. It's a lot of fun to get out there and try to get it done in all the different situations and scenarios that you run into. Randall, you said you, you like to set up 100 yards or within a, a little bit within 100 yards. That's pretty dang close. What are you doing to know um, exactly where he's betting? Are you going in months ahead of time to figure that out, or, or is it sometimes in like in-season scouting and you're finding it and then just setting up right on it? Or what is your process? And then kind of explain maybe like some of your tricks on getting that close to set up because you really got to tap into your inner ninja to get within a hundred yards of a, of a white tail. Yeah, for sure. Inner so in ninja. Inner ninja. <laughs> the, in a perfect world, I want to find that deer bed right now. So January, February, March, April, I'm out putting as many miles on as I can trying to find all these beds and how they're set up for what wind. So I have some options. I can dive in. I can lay in the bed, look out. I can see what trees he can see me in, which trees he can't. And then I can figure out an access right then that day. When I find that bed, I figure, okay, I can't be more than 15 feet high, 75 yards away, or he's going to pick me off look to see what kind of tree type it is. Red oaks hold their leaves longer. So if you got a bunch of red oaks around, you can get away with hunting that bed a little bit later into the season before the leaves drop. So you might be able to slide in a little bit closer a little bit later, more towards the rut when they're kind of getting cagey. You know, they're moving a little bit more. And sometimes they're only going to be there the first week or two of season because they're got the canary grass is going to die off around them then they're going to move bedding or whatever so once you find a bed you got to be able to analyze all the variables to help you figure out how close you can get and where you need to be to kill the buck you know once you slide in on him but summertime i will go scout too i'm always scouting it's a little bit harder to the, see the beds in the summer because you're going off a of last year's sign to try to figure it out. And their summer range is a lot different, so the beds won't be fresh. It's really hard to dictate what's what. But you, once you get experience, you can still do it. And in season, I do not really like to do that unless I don't know an area. Then you just go blow it up. And then you can, you can try to pull a bump and dump on the buck. Or if I find the bed... I look for like three, two to three days that are going to be the same wind. So I got a northwest wind three days in a row. Then I might fly in the first day and scout everywhere I can that's going to have kind of a northwest wind bed ahead of time. And then I'm going to expect that buck to move into that bedding when the wind switches. And then I'm going to try to be there uh, when when he gets there you know what i mean on that wind switch so he's not when he hits my sin it's already too late like i'm already gonna he's gonna have to decide to bed there one day and then not come back or i'm gonna catch him coming into the bed so that way i can hunt it right away 
if in my mind, I mean, you want to be able to hunt that right away if you find it in season. So you don't want to go in on the northwest wind, and then the next couple of days it's a totally different wind because it's not going to do you any good. So let, let's back up for and talk about beds for a minute, you know, because guys are going to listen to this and go, oh, man, I need to go find some <clears throat> smoking hot beds, and we're in March right now. Um, <laughs> and and it, it, let's clear that up for a minute. The, the beds that you find in August, September, or August, let's say, July, August, or the beds you find in January, February, March, not always, but a lot of times those are not the same places that they're going to be bedded in September, October, November. Food food uh, cover change. There's lots that change between, you know, uh, wet. You know, it's not, you know, it, it's freezing cold in Iowa, as we well know, in January and February. So they could be positioned, you know, on a leeward ridge or something, you know, out of the wind. And then come October, they could be in a completely different place. So the beds that you're looking for are ones that are made when you can hunt them October, November. You're not looking yeah. for smoking hot beds in January unless you plan on hunting in January. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, because I feel like they already made their late season switch in January. Yeah. And it's not going to do you any good. It's like when you go out and you find all these snow beds, like that's, to me, that's doesn't do me any good if I'm hunting in October because that's a late season bedding pattern. I don't care about that as much. I'm looking for... Like September, September, if you have a state that opens like uh, Nebraska, North Dakota in September, they're still somewhat in the summer pattern. So you can use like a summer bedding. If you roll in in the summer and find some beds, you could use that. But if you're hunting like an October opener state, they've already transitioned to their fall ranges already. And most of the bucks are gone. You, you'll have situations where a buck might be a homebody and he's going to stay. But most of the time, they make a little shift, even if it's a yeah. couple hundred yards. And after you get experience, you can tell an early season bed versus a rut bed versus like a late season bed just by the sign they leave behind, how it's set up, and like what's around it. Yeah. Well, I dive into that a little bit. I, I explain, like, uh, explain an early season bed, uh, uh, mid season or rut, pre rut bed versus a late season bed. What, what would what would distinguish those to you? Would you say? So I feel like the early season bed is going to be his main home range. It's going to set up where it's almost impossible to kill him. You know, you get in that mature buck bed and you look around and you're like, how the hell would I ever kill this deer? And then the light bulb goes off. And there, and if you're on an actual mature deer, there's a difference in bedding because you'll have younger bucks bedding and then you got mature buck bedding. And they're a lot different. Like a mature buck, I feel like a five and a half or older, they really lock in to this home range. Most of the time, I feel like they're more like homebodies. You know, they're like your grandpa just stays in the basement, watches TV all day type person. They really shrink that down. That's and there's me. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's just a little po pocket of sign. The beds are usually more worn down for like a Pacific wind, which is 
really, if you look up the data on where you live, it'll tell you the percentages of the wins that you get through some apps that I use. So, like, I was mostly a northwest wind. So, if I find a northwest wind uh, setup bed for a mature buck, it's usually used a lot because we get that wind more. So, it'll be dug into the ground a little bit, hair. But it'll be mostly adjacent to the secondary food sources that are there early in the season. Or, like, ag will still be in. Like, I don't really pay attention to beans here because... Usually the bucks are off the beans here, so I'm more focused on corn. And then once those secondary food sources dry up a little bit and that corn comes out, then they make a shift for the late season to a different food. But during the rut, sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over. But no, you're good. No, we're listening. This is good. Uh, during the rut, it'll just be random bedding because they're falling a doe around. It's not going to be a well-worn-in bed. The buck's only going to bed there with the doe, like maybe, what, three days to breed her. And she's moving around to different bedding areas, too. So there's going to be no hardcore bed. And it's just going to be like a crap ton of rubs everywhere. You hit a spot and it's just like 100 rubs. It's usually like a, a rut spot because he's all pissed off. He's on the doe. He's just leaving sign everywhere. And then the late season shift with the food source, you're going to find that bed late in the season and it i don't think it'll be worn in as much either it's going to be more towards like whatever food source he switched to to live you know when it's negative 35 he's on the south facing slope and he's like right above a cornfield that was cut you know two months ago or something yeah all right well that's good uh let's let's switch gears and let's talk equipment because we really like to talk equipment you know on the podcast and Go start with. Let's run through. We'll go through your archery setup second, but let, let's start with your since you're a mobile guy, you know, a saddle guy. This is something you yeah. and can can talk about because I don't do a whole lot of saddle hunting. But walk us through kind of how you have your whole setup because you you've obviously got your system dialed in. Walk us through that, Randall. Yeah, so I run a tethered Phantom. It's more like a minimalist saddle. Uh, two pouches on each side, one holds my linesman, one holds my tether and my gear hanger. Uh, pretty, and I got a predator platform that I use. Uh, I use the various, various sticks, just try different things out. There's some I like, some I don't. Uh, you can go super lightweight or you can go more sturdy and heavier. I mean, there's a wide range. For me, I'm looking for something that can get me in any tree I want to be in. Leaning trees, you know, big trees, little trees. So you you really want a versatile setup, not something that's going to hamper you. So there's some sticks that got like angled steps that'll help you out on leaning trees. Uh, you can go super lightweight. It just depends on your personal preference. Uh, I. The tethered one sticks are super light. I mean, three sticks is three pounds, so super easy to tote around. I've used some uh, single steps, little short, like Lone Wolf Custom Gear steps that are like 14 inches, and they got the angles and the rotating standoffs, so you can really put those in the leaning trees really well. So I, I like those too. I mean, it just depends on what your personal preference is, and... Um, 
so you got that that's essentially it. you got your saddle you got your little platform i like the little platform personally they got these extra large jumbo platforms but i don't care for them because it's more weight it's harder to pack in on your backpack and i can't fit them in like little nooks and crannies like i can the regular size platforms and i'm more hunting the edges of the platform too to move around I don't really stand. I just lean on the edge and walk around the sides of it. And uh, hunting the bedding style too, I'm just hunting exit trails. So I'm setting up for, I know that buck's going to come out that one trail. He's on my power side. He's going to come right by me. And I just want to make that with a little movement as possible. So a lot of guys set up behind the tree in the saddle. But I don't do that. I set up on the side of the tree and lean out. So I'm totally exposed when the buck's walking in because he can see me leaning off the side of the tree. Um, I hold my bow the whole time. I do have a prototype accessory that um, I talked to Tethered about. And they made me some prototypes that I use to help me with the holding the bow thing for long periods of time. But I, I want to hold the bow because I don't want to reach up and make that long movement to grab my bow because I'm leaned out so far to look like a branch. So I'm just holding the bow the whole time. And you can hide your draw with the bow too. You'd be surprised what you can get away with when you have the bow already there and you just draw really slow back. So you want to have the bow dialed in where you can draw really easy and smooth too. You don't want to be out there doing that, you know, super rambo muscle macho archery crap you just want a super smooth pull and then you're just there and the, you know you're just smoking when he comes in and uh i don't know i run two to three sticks yeah what all right now that segues right into bow setup what what are you running bow wise matthew atlas i got a, like a 33 and a half to 34 inch draw so yep. i gotta have a I got to have a long draw bow. I didn't always have that. I had a regular bow and I just max it out and do all kinds of crazy stuff to try to get it as far back as I could. But you never get good form because you got to drop your head way down or you're sh shortening up your elbow. And I mean, I learned to shoot like that and I killed a lot of deer with that, but it's not optimum. So when these long draw newer bows came out, I, I switched to that and been messing around with that. Yeah, so what, what kind of arrows? Um, I've, I've messed with all different types of arrows, trying to figure out what I like. Yeah. Um, yeah, I tend to like the micro diameter stuff. I really like the Victory Vaps. Uh, last year, I shot like the Exodus arrows. Um, I kind of fell in love with the Zinger fletching things because I hate fletching arrows. I mean, a lot of guys think they're kind of a gimmick, but I love those things. So you can just slide them right on and go. And they got some new arrows coming out that I think I'm going to use this year. Um, Katana arrows, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah, I saw those today. They they have the, um, I think the bow hunting league. Maybe they're they're coming yeah. on the bow hunting league. And and do they have the zinger fletchings already on them, or is that their own proprietary fletch? Yeah, it has a it has the zinger wrap and it has the zinger flexing on the arrows already on there when you get them, and they use uh, ethics uh, accessories like the inserts and stuff. 
What um tell tell everybody what the zinger fletching is? We, we, you know, because there's a lot of guys that are listening here that don't know exactly what that is. So it's a 3D printed uh, vein system that just slides on the shaft. They're sized for the actual outer diameter of your arrow, and you can just slide them on in a couple seconds. So they got like three. Three fletch, four fletch, and they're all like set off. I think it's three to six degree offset. I think. And you, you've shot these a lot. Like you, you've practiced with them, shot them out in the distance, and yeah, I've I've shot a couple bucks with them. Did all kinds of testing on them. They got a lifetime warranty. I mean, they're super durable. I just got tired of shooting my my hunting arrows and I'd shoot through a vein and you got to sit there and strip it off and you got to refletch it, have the fletcher. These you can just slide right on and off, change colors, try different ones really quick. So I could put on like a fixed blade broadhead if I wanted and mess around with like three vein versus four vein, different offsets. I could have the helical going left or right. I mean... There's, so you can do a lot of testing really quick without ever actually like flexing your arrow just by sliding the zingers on and off. And when you put the wrap on there, they do stay on there. Like when I've shot through some bucks, it stayed on the arrow. But if you run without the wraps, they can, they can pop off and tell you like, okay, well, here's where my arrow impacted the deer at. Some guys use it like that. Yeah. Yeah. A cookie trail. Yeah. What uh? What are your broadheads of broadheads of choice, Randall? I like the mechanicals. Um, the last twelve years, I've pretty much used like G five. That it went from like T threes to the dead meat to the mega meat. And then they got some like dead meat V twos out now that I'm I'm gonna run. I love the I love mechanicals, man. I love speed. I'm not into all this crazy FOC 5,000 grain arrow shoot over someone's house with it at 15 yards kind of thing. Yeah, your draw length is 100 miles long, too, so you ain't getting no FOC whether you want it or not. No, it's impossible. I don't even cut my <laughs> arrows. They're all uncut. <laughs> yeah, you don't even cut them. <laughs> yeah, just right out of the box and go. Put a tip on it, off you go. But uh, I, I like to speed for hunting public land because if I see a little hole that I can shoot through, I want to be able to have confidence I'm making it through that hole and I'm not hitting the branch five foot above it because I got that really high arch. And if I got if I got a 200-inch bucket 60 yards, I want to be able to shoot 60 yards too, not be limited to freaking 20 yards. Yeah, I mean, you're you're telling Noah about the flood. I mean, we we've done every possible broadhead and arrow. Not every possible, but we we've done a ton of it, and and really geeked out on this, and talked to some guys that that work with millions of dollars of bow hunting equipment, and you know th these are guys that shoot thirty animals a year, and and guys yeah. that do a lot of that, a lot not not shooting you know, three animals a year or one animal every other year, but guys that shoot a lot of stuff every year, they like a moderate weight arrow and a mechan a good, well-built mechanical broadhead. I mean, that's yeah. what we found. 
And I'm shooting like, I don't know, 330 feet per second with my setup. So, I mean, it's just blowing right through these 300-pound bucks like butter, man. Yeah. It, it hits, it goes through them so fast, they don't even know what happened. They just stand there and look around like, what the hell just happened, you know? They're not running like 100 mile an hour out of there. They're just kind of looking around like, what the heck? Because it just blows through them so fast. Yeah. No, that that's good, man. We I, I like the three hundred right around the three hundred feet per second too. But for me, I've got to be over seventy pounds, and and um, yeah, that's kind of Kevin's right in there, the two ninety, two ninety five range. Yeah, I got a little bit shorter draw length than you, Randall, so I, I got to crank her <laughs> up, max that bad boy. Yeah. What are you like half of mine? 15, yeah, twenty eight and a half, twenty nine. So uh, yeah, I don't uh. I don't got much on that 33-incher. Yeah, nope. <laughs> Most people <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both humans, but you're a foot taller than me. That's weird. Yeah, um, I'm just a freak. What about your – what's your sight of choice? Do you like a, a multi-pin, single pin? What do you got? I got a multi – I got a five-pin sight. I've never used a single pin before, ever. I'm kind of a guy that if something works, why mess? I'm I don't really try to fix a issue that's not an issue. I'm just like, oh, I got this, and it's just working for me, so I'm just going to use it. I'm not a big tryout kind of guy. I don't think on some things. I like the multi pin sight because I can shoot out the yardage. I don't want to be guessing and aiming on a buck's back. I want a pin that's going to be kind of right in there. I mean, my first pin's out to 30 yards, so. And then I got four more pins after that gapped out 10-yard increments. So I'm going to shoot the 60 yards while on a pin. I mean, I don't really want to shoot a deer over 60 yards unless he was like some world record, you know, freaking yeah. giant. And he wasn't coming in at like 70. I might be the guy that would send it, man, just that no balls, no bucks. Like, I'll take all the hate I can. But if I killed him, you know, he'd be a legend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, so what site is that that you like? That's the five pin. I used uh It's a Trophy Ridge React Pro. It's got the little dials. You don't have to use an Allen wrench on it, which I always hated. Micro. So you can, yeah, it's micro adjust. You just spin the little knobs. That's the main reason I bought it because I don't like adjusting uh, individual pins and stuff. This guesstimates your gap, you know, as you sight in two pins. So you, I sight in my 30, then my 60, then it automatically aligns all the other pins up. Yeah, Trophy Ridge makes good good stuff for the money, for sure. What about your rest? I got a hamski, man, built like a tank, limb-driven, yep. won't fail. There's too many horror stories like QAD out there freezing up. When I'm hunting negative 35 degrees... I don't want to have to worry about some snow getting in my uh, my rest and then freezing it up. So the ham ski will work no matter what, no matter what weather condition it is. Yep, that, we, we're ham ski guys too. We've tested a lot of them. We've had rest freeze up, and um, yeah, the, the limb yeah. is definitely preferable uh, in, in in the cold weather for sure. Yeah, I think if you're hunting the south, you can get away with a lot more different things. But when you're hunting up here in like really cold weather conditions, it really sets it really sets gear apart, like the quality of it, how it's built, little things that a lot of guys don't think about. 
It's a plug for Osseo gear. Yeah, I think that is a plug for Osseo gear. <laughs> tell, all right, we, 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 you've told the story 50 times, but tell everybody about the negative 30, negative 35, sweat nice. Yeah, so December, this massive Arctic cold front came in and dropped Iowa down to like negative 35 with like 30 something on our winds. And, uh, I decided that I really wanted to push your late season set to the limits to see what that bad boy could do. So my crazy ass decided to go hunting for three days. <laughs> you so texted me and said on. you were going, and I said, I cannot believe it, man. You've lost your mind. Yeah, I said, you and Kevin, the feels like temperatures and the text message with the screenshot. And I was like, all right, let's see what this stuff can do. And then uh, I was kind of nervous not to wear it in because you're like it's so warm you're gonna sweat but i was like man i really don't want to walk in negative 35 with like just a light layer on so i put the whole suit on <laughs> and went in there and i was sweating my balls off in negative 35 <laughs> with the suit on and i was sweating so bad it was dripping off me but it was so cold when it would drip, it instantly turned to ice. So it was like hailing off of me. I'm just sweating all this ice off my body. It was insane. I was like, man, I'm an idiot for being out here. <laughs> that is insane. But, man, that's a that's a heck of a testimonial. I mean, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah, and even being so – I had merino wool on underneath. And, you know, it doesn't dry out super fast. So even being out there kind of wet. I still got my afternoon, like, four-hour sit-in, and that it's crazy cold. And, you know, you got to do things to help you out. Like, I had some hand warmers, some heated stuff for my hands and my feet. But, like, my main core was I never felt like I was going to die out there, which is possible in that kind of sure. temperature. Yeah, no, no, that's brutal. What's crazy to me is uh, when you were telling me about when you hunt all those cold weather days and not even wear insulated boots. You just wear lace-up boots with, with some thicker yeah. socks. I learned that if you wear insulated boots and you're mobile hunting, your feet sweat and you're done because then it doesn't dry out, your feet are wet, and then they freeze. So I like to wear heavy merino wool socks. I'll rub deodorant on the bottom of my feet antiperspirant deodorant because it keeps your feet from sweating as much and then i have the merino so if it does sweat it'll dry out fast yeah and even in a negative 35 i just wore my regular boots i wear in september and then i got some i got some arctic shield boot covers that i tote in my backpack and then i'll throw those on when i get there and maybe toss like a hand warmer in there that'll do it Randall, with you being a mobile hunter and a saddle guy, everybody's got their own like mods and stuff that they do to their their setups. Do you have any kind of like light bulb moment mods or something that's kind of maybe not groundbreaking, but outside of the box that that helps you kind of pack stuff in or set it up or anything like that? Man, I'm not a super crazy DIY guy, man. I want to focus on scouting and hunting and not messing around with gear. I'm a hunt deer, not gear guy. 
But uh, there's a couple different things I really like. Uh, Genesis 3D makes a platform hanger that hooks on the back of your saddle. So when I get to the tree, I take my saddle off the backpack and I hang it off that gear hanger for when I'm climbing the tree. And he makes a lot of mods for like climbing sticks. So they hook together without you having to use like tighten straps. Or even sometimes the original methods aren't really well thought out in my mind. So he'll make improvements to make it easier to carry the sticks in and out so they're quieter. Because hunting that close to buck bedding, you have to be quiet. So like I'm stealth stripping the crap out of everything I got. I love the stealth strip. It quiets everything down. I'm doing any kind of mod that keeps the movement off my sticks or my platform way down. I'm trying to separate those items too on my body. A lot of guys all pack them together on their pack, but I don't like that. I like to have separate areas on my backpack for certain things. Like Tether makes the Predator pack. You can put the platform inside of it. So I usually strap that to something or the platform on the back of the pack. And then I'll hang. I like to hang my sticks off the bottom just with like compression straps. Then there's no way that that can contact each other when I'm moving through because a lot of times to get to these buck beds, man, you have to go through like some hellacious stuff to get there. So to have, to have those ninja skills, like everything on your body has to be really tight on you. It's got to be quiet. It's got to be separated. And you got to uh, just be aware of what's going on. Sometimes I'll even carry my sticks. I won't even have them on my pack because I feel like I can navigate the sticks with my arm better. So they don't like rub on brush or trees. Cause you know, you hit metal on like a tree branch, it'll clang or something. So I'm trying to keep that, but, uh, I like different packs. Uh, early season, I like a smaller pack cause it's hot and I'm not carrying that much gear. Uh, into the rut, you're carrying layers. I'm a, I'd rather put all the stuff on and vent it out and kind of sweat a little bit kind of guy. Cause I hate putting stuff on at the tree. But now I'll get like 200 yards out or 150 yards out from the bedding area. Then I'll put the clothes on instead of doing it at the tree. I feel like there's too much going on at the tree when you're that close to a buck. So I like that. I don't know, 200 yards. Probably I'll stop, take the pack off if I got layers. So you need a bigger pack for later in the year. Because I don't, I don't know. Some guys just hang crap all over their pack, like their jacket and bibs. I don't like that. I like to put everything inside. So like the Ozio bag, it's like, what, 2,300 cubic inch. I can put the mid-season coat, the mid-season bibs in there, and my saddle all inside of that backpack and roll in. Or like late season, I put the bibs and the coat sometimes inside. They'll both fit inside of the pack. Yep. And then I can just wear my saddle and take my saddle back off or I can strap my saddle to the outside of the pack and like a little dry pouch thing and then roll in. So, well, you'll be happy that we're going to be adding the compression straps. I, I just did the dimensions. Uh, I think Monday, either we did them Friday or Monday and um, we're going to have, uh, we're going to have compression straps on the bottom of both the large pack and the new smaller pack. So that'll be good. Yeah, that'd be awesome to hang the sticks off of underneath and then have the platform strapped to the back. Cool, and man. There's a, there, there's a lot of bags out there you can make work, but there's not a lot of bags that are perfect. So the Ozio gear bag's so quiet, too. 
Uh, so I love that because it's not making any noise when you're moving around. So that's huge. And there's some really good, like Tethered has like a fast pack, you know, that's good for like early season stuff, but it's a little bit louder. Yeah, I mean, you, you're right. There's not – everybody's style is a little bit different. Kuyu makes a really good backpack. You know, Kafaru makes good backpacks. Uh, Kevin and I both have Mystery Ranch backpacks. You know, we do a lot of yeah. mountain hunting, and, and I love my big bomb-proof Mystery Ranch packs. So there's a lot of good packs. And, you know, obviously, ICOs first and foremost in, in, in our minds. But, guys, you need to – Get out there and, and see what works for you. It, it might not be the Osseo pack. It might be the Mystery Ranch or, or you know, QU. You know, they make good, solid stuff. So got to get out and just experience stuff and try it out, you know. But the Osseo pack will probably do what you need. <laughs> yeah, I love that thing for sure. <laughs> That's good stuff. Well, Randall, man, we're closed in on about an hour here. We try to keep these things at about an hour. So uh, really appreciate your time tonight. Um, we're we're going to have to have you on again because I know we didn't get through everything that we wanted to. So we'll have a, a Randall part two. I um, want to talk with you, you know, about Iowa specifically because <clears throat> that's, you know, kind of a lot of people's mecca. They, they want to put in for the draw, yeah. especially the non-resident guys. So maybe next time we can talk about Iowa and talk about some of your traveling to different states and, you know, what you look for and finding public land in different states. So we got a whole list of other stuff we could talk about. Um, does that sound good to you? Yeah, sounds awesome. Be happy to anytime. Good deal, buddy. Well, we sure appreciate it. Have a good night. And uh, I know you and I will be talking tomorrow. Yeah, for sure, bud. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks, big dog.